So Philippians chapter 1, starting at verse 27, and it's on page 831 of the Red Pew Bibles. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. Since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I wonder... I wonder if any of us has been profoundly influenced by or aspired to be like a particular godly man or a godly woman. The sort of person that truly walks the talk of being a Christian. Someone you would consider to be an excellent example of a model or a model to be imitated. Someone you would hold in high esteem as a role model. Maybe it's somebody from this church or another church that you've been to. Maybe it was the minister, maybe it was a Sunday school teacher, maybe it was your mum or dad or some other family member. Good examples are helpful to have, aren't they? Someone to model our own Christian walk on. As we look at the letter to the Philippians, we can see that Paul became a highly esteemed role model and mentor of that church. Ten years after he founded that church in Philippi, we see that both he and the Philippians continue to care for each other very deeply. As we've discovered, today's passage is um, chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians through to verse 11 of chapter 2. So it would be great if you could uh, reach for your Bibles and open them up at that passage and have a look at it as we explore what Paul's got to say. And we'll see in this passage that 
Paul's addressing some concerns about church unity. His concerns arise from some challenging both external and internal issues that we could face even in this church. Paul just doesn't outline the problems, however. He also goes on and gives some really great advice about how we as Christians should handle such challenges. Because the risk and likelihood is that if they are left to go unabated, then the church can face some really ugly situations that are both damaging to its members and dishonouring to God. If you flick over or scan over to verse 2 of chapter 3, we'll see there the nature of one of the external problems that the Philippian church was facing. We're told here that there were false teachers probably trying to infiltrate the church and Paul doesn't leave us with any doubt about how he feels. Let's just read it. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. These dogs, as Paul calls them, were teaching things that detracted from the soul sufficiency of what Jesus had done on the cross and stipulated that in order to be saved, extra stuff needed to be done like getting circumcised. As it turns out, this threat to the unity and harmony of the church was not a problem unique to the Philippians either. For example, we see evidence of it in the letters of Jude and as Paul writes to 1 Corinthians. For us today, we can find false teaching in the form of liberalism. They say the reality of the incarnation and resurrection is to be challenged. We can come across false teaching in the form of legalism where they say you need to put trust in certain rites or rituals or ceremonies or even sacraments or others will say that membership in a particular sect or group is necessary is in fact essential in order to be saved Mormons will say something like that in verse 2 of chapter 4 Paul talks about an internal problem in the church in Philippi. And in this verse he says, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. We can see from this verse that there are arguments between church members in this church and that represented a threat to unity. We could see this happening in our own churches over things that if we looked at them in the um, um, bigger picture and, and so on, we should see them as, as petty and not important. I mean, for example, how ridiculous would it be if, if a rift or even a split, split in the church was to happen over arguments about, say, colour of the carpet or position of a piece of furniture in the building? It happens. As Christians in God's church, I wonder how seriously we take responsibility of being the public showcase, the shop window, so to speak, the advertisement, the webpage or portal for God's character. Through our thoughts and actions, what are we teaching the world about God? Let's have a look at verses 14 to 16 in chapter 2 and see what Paul says about how we should behave and how the world should see us. <clears throat> Let me read that. 
from verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. It prompts us to ask the question, are we shining like a star in the universe? Are we differentiating ourselves from the unbelievers in the world? As Jesus commanded, are we showing the world that we are his disciples by the Christ-like love that we have for one another? So that we don't become complacent, we need to remember that ungodly behaviour can cause a lot of damage to us as individuals and to the church as a whole. Paul tells Timothy, in fact, that controversies and quarrels result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions and constant friction. Ungodly behaviour can create problems like gossip, rumours, people's feelings can be hurt, reputations and relationships ruined, people taking sides in rival actions, people backsliding or even leaving the church altogether. Ultimately this can cause a church to split or even die. So under these conditions, we wouldn't expect any effective mission work to be happening, nor would such a church be attractive to outsiders. Ultimately, it would only be bringing dishonour to God. So as Christians, what does God expect from us in terms of our behaviour or conduct? You know, any ungodly attitudes or behaviour in the church have their origins in our fallen world. And that's because we live in the fallen world. And it's characterised by pride and selfishness, dissension and being loveless, being vain and conceited. I would call these the fruits of the world and I would compare them to the fruits of the spirit that we find in Galatians chapter 5. However, God's got the antidote to address any disunity and disharmony that develops in his church. So with this in mind, Paul calls upon the Philippians to conduct their lives in a manner befitting the gospel and to live godly lives in unity. The unity that Paul urges them to practice is rooted in one crucial attitude, and that's humility. Paul describes the work of Jesus as the supreme example of humility and for the sake of the gospel directs us to imitate him. In verse 27 of chapter 1, the beginning of the passage we're going to look at in more detail this morning, Paul's very clear about what God expects. We read, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let that, th let that sink in. Let's read it again. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Because we are citizens of God's kingdom here on earth, we need to behave like it. If we call ourselves Christians, then we need to act like Christians. So we've got to live a life that doesn't dishonour or discredit the gospel. And that can happen. It can happen, all right. It can happen if we're self-centred or being arrogant or argumentative, angry, grumbling, using foul language, cheating and only pretending to care about others. 
So the question really is then, how can we be worthy and please God in the process? What does it look like? Well, in this passage, Paul makes three major points. He says we need to be like-minded, one in spirit and purpose. He says we need to put others first. And he says we need to adopt the attitude of Jesus. And I'd like to look at those three things in a little more detail. We are to be like-minded, one in spirit and purpose. This is covered off in the first six verses, starting from verse 27 of chapter 1. Let me read those. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Here we see from these verses that we are to stand united as brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we have God on our side, we shouldn't be frightened or intimidated by any opposition. The vital thing is that through the love of Christ and love for each other, that we overcome any differences amongst ourselves and oppose the enemy on the outside, not one another. We can't stand and walk together if we're not on the same page and in, and in agreement. The way in which we do this will speak volumes to those around us. In verse 1 of chapter 2, we see there that it says that we can be motivated encouraged by what we have in Jesus, comforted by his love, united in the spirit, and living affectionately and compassionately with each other because that's how he treats us. We can expect, as you can see in verse 2, that through our mutual love for God and for one another that we shouldn't be arguing. That is, we are to be like-minded. This means that we should be able to pull together as one team, so to speak. And this is for one purpose, which is to proclaim the gospel to the world. I wonder if there are any brothers or sisters in Christ with whom you have unresolved issues. No broken relationship should be allowed to remain unbroken. Reconciliation and unity is very important to God. And to our second point on how we should be conducting ourselves, we are to put others first. Look at it in verses 3 and 4. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In these verses we see Paul contrasting humility with its opposites, which are selfishness and pride. He is saying that unity gets established through humility, and that humility is an attitude which manifests itself in our actions. 
So humility starts with our thoughts. Thinking of others and not being consumed with opinions of ourselves. That is, thinking of others as more important than yourself. In Romans 12, Paul says, Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. There's a well-renowned um, chap called Jim Collins, an American. He's a highly regarded management consultant and author and guru on the subject of leadership, particularly in, with regard to um, leading large world corporations, large companies, successful companies. He and his researchers identified two specific character traits shared by CEOs of very successful companies. And the first one, the first trait was no surprise. I'm sure if I asked you, you could yell it out. These people, these CEOs, demonstrated incredible will to succeed and to endure anything to just to do well. It was in their very nature. The second character in the trait was a surprise and it's counterintuitive. These leaders, these self-driven leaders, were modest and humble. They didn't like drawing attention to themselves and consistently pointed to the contribution of others. Seemingly ordinary people quietly producing extraordinary results. In fact, as part of the research, the people working for these leaders were uh, interviewed, asked questions about what these people were like, why they were so successful. And the words that came back to the questions, in, in answer to the questions, were things like quiet and humble, modest, reserved, shy and gracious. These leaders of huge corporations thought of others as more significant than themselves. And I can vouch for this through personal experience. Way back in the early 90s when telecommunications was deregulated and Optus started up. Optus was a company that had to spend a lot of money quickly and get telecommunication or telephone services up and running in short order time, a very demanding situation. And of course one of the key questions to be answered was who's the right man to run this show? Who's going to be the captain of the ship? And I guess this selection process was um, pretty thorough and they would have entertained a number of candidates but the man they chose was a chap called Bob Mansfield, an inspirational leader. In fact in all my corporate life, my past corporate life, he was singularly the most inspirational leader of any large organisation that I've had anything to do with and that man was very gracious, very humble and I've never heard him say a harsh word or speak or yell to anybody in what we would consider an ungodly way. But we can look to the Bible for inspiration too if we're looking for role models. Paul was a great leader and a godly man. But he even had these things to say about himself. He said to the Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles. He said to the Ephesians, I am the least deserving of all God's people. And he wrote to Timothy and he said, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. It's incredible that such a great man would say those things.
But to understand humility better, Paul contrasts it with selfish ambition and vain conceit in verse 3 of the passage that we're looking at. You know, these are the type of people who are always promoting themselves or boasting about how good they are or making themselves look more important by undermining others. Do you know anybody like that? Have you ever worked with anybody like that? In any position of authority, this attitude of self-promotion is very dangerous. Certain politicians come to mind. Unfortunately, and sometimes, we find these type of people in churches. They're looking to advance themselves and not the kingdom of God. They aspire for leadership positions and more power. In places where this has happened, the people in the church find themselves choosing sides, sometimes resulting in a split. The fallout can mean that people leave the church and never return. All of this because one person was driven by selfish ambition and vain conceit. So here's the lesson. Selfish ambition can divide churches, whereas humility unites churches. So let's now turn to the third and last point on how we should be conducting ourselves. We need to adopt the attitude of Jesus. And in fact, Paul is very explicit about that in verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. He's not saying consider it. He's saying it needs to be. And when we look back across verses 1 to 4 of this passage in chapter 2, Paul tells us about the importance of being humble and selfless. And so by way of example, in the following verses, Paul describes what Jesus was like. So if we look at verses 6 to 8, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. We can see from these verses that Jesus has always existed as the second person of the Godhead and was fully equal with the Father. Even though Jesus was equal with God the Father, he did not take this as an opportunity to further his own interests at the Father's expense. Instead, in verse 7, we see he set aside the, person, the pursuit of his personal interests, interests that would have been in competition with the Father. By humbling himself as he did, Jesus suffered in the interests of his Father by leaving heaven, living on earth as a man and as a servant and taking the wrath of God on the cross. So how did God respond to the humility of Jesus? Well, in verses 9 to 11 in this passage, we see that Jesus was highly esteemed in God's eyes. Let's see what it says, starting from verse 9. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus stooped so low in his humility and yet was elevated to the highest possible place of honour by the Father. 
As a result of Christ's humility and obedience, God highly exalted him, giving to Jesus a name above every name. Jesus dwelt among men and was rejected and crucified by men. Jesus is the one to whom every knee will someday bow. Every tongue will confess him to be the Lord of all. How should we respond to the humility of Jesus? We need to appreciate the atoning work of Jesus does not only produce praise from those who believe in him for salvation, but that every living thing will praise him. Every living thing will praise him. We can see from verses 10 and 11 that all mankind, dead and alive, believing and unbelieving, will bow the knee and confess that Jesus is Lord. But there's a warning in here for anyone who has not yet trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. My friends, do you think if you reject Jesus and his offer of salvation, that is the end of it? If you do, you're sadly mistaken. Those who die without trusting in him will acknowledge him as Lord, but not as Saviour. Is it not a terrifying thought of being one of those, at the end of the day, who's going to bow the knee to Jesus as his defeated enemy? The remedy is to acknowledge Jesus as your Lord and Saviour now, to trust him for the forgiveness of your sins and, and your place in heaven. I urge you not to leave this life without first trusting in him. And I urge you not to end this day without doing so. So in this passage, Paul's been telling us to conduct ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. He encourages us to practice love and unity with each other as the practical outward of a humble attitude. Paul points us to the humility and humiliation of Jesus as the ultimate example for us to imitate. We should be humble because we have no basis for pride. In fact, the Bible says in the book of James that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And in Luke's Gospel we read, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You might want to think of this as the way up is down. Jesus also said, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But meekness is not weakness. It's considering the good of others, even at your own expense. Remember this. What's in your heart determines what we think. And what we think determines how we act. Is Jesus in your heart? What a tremendous privilege and responsibility God has given us to be the light to this world. We must have a concern to present a good witness to others of what God is like. We must be examples ourselves. We must shine like stars in the universe. How we live will either commend or deny the gospel we proclaim. If unbelievers find the same pride and self-centeredness in us that they see in the world, why should they take the gospel seriously? Why would the world think that Christianity has any relevance at all if they see the church divided? As you go about your business after you leave here today, 
adopt the attitude of Jesus and become like that person you so admired and aspired to be like when I asked you to think about it at the beginning of this talk. Remember, in everything you think and do, consider the example you're setting. God has a great plan for his people and for his world. He has called us to show that by our words and our lives. To help us remember how to conduct our lives that's worthy of the gospel, at the bottom of the um, uh, bulletin sheet there, there's a good old three-letter acronym, J-O-Y, joy, which happens to be a play on words for the book of Philippians. It's often regarded as sort of the book of joy, the letter of joy in the Bible. But for our purposes, I'd like you to never forget, I'd like you to burn it onto your brains, joy. Jesus first, others second, yourselves last. So whenever you're out there in this world or mixing here with your brothers and sisters, that's the attitude you should have. And always remember, joy, Jesus first, others second and yourself last. And listen, I've got one last thing. I've got the secret to a happy life. And that's something that everybody wants to have. So I'm going to share it with you. I can tell you that as long as you're seeking your own happiness, it will elude you. But when you decide to live to please Jesus and to be a servant to the people in your life, you will find your level of joy begin to increase. And it's that simple. That's the secret to happiness. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you so, so, so much for the humility of your son, Jesus. We thank you, Father, that he stooped so low that he was prepared to die on the cross so that we might be saved and have a place in heaven. Father, we pray that we would take what we've learned from this passage today and in all our actions and in all our thoughts that we always think of Jesus first and then other people next and then put ourselves last. And we pray, Father, that people would see through our actions in this world us as your representatives and appointer to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.